0: When it comes to our children, we are hampered tremendously, tremendously hampered by what I'm going to call a paradoxical confusion. Paradoxical confusion, meaning there's a bit of tension here when it comes to how we view the lens through which we see our children. On the one hand, we have the idealization of children. Now you think in terms of just the natural state, the natural way that, that parents see their offspring, they treasure their offspring. Of course, that's absolutely right, absolutely appropriate. The problem is is that that view, the treasuring, the valuing of offspring, goes to seed, if I can put it that way. When we begin to lift those same children up upon pedestals, as though somehow they were paragons of innocence. That's the idealization of children. It is a profound mistake, a profound mistake to see them through only these rose-colored lenses. That's one extreme. Here's the other extreme. And it is not so much uh, an idealization at all, but it is resentment. The resentment of children. If you know anything about parenting, if you've parented more than a day, you, you know that it is an emotionally taxing enterprise, financially expensive And time-intensive. Just saying. Let's be honest. That's fine to acknowledge and necessary to acknowledge. At the same time, that goes to seed when it collides with our selfish individualistic agendas that then degenerate into resentment. You have this tension. You have these two extremes, and the popular media, popular culture around us feeds both of those sides, those extremes, all the time, the idealization side and the resentment side. We are in desperate need of clarity to cut through all of this confusion and literally thank God we have it in his word. We really, really do. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. Pushing on in this series through the Gospel of Matthew, picking up where we left off last week in Matthew 19. We're going to leave it's a very short text, very short text, profound in its implications. Matthew 19, just verses 13, 14, and 15. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. If you're trying to find Matthew, that's the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 19 is where we are this morning. Just Like like I said, just a very short text. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Hear now the word of God. Then children were brought to him, and that is Jesus. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Well, like I said, it was short. But we need to pray. Let's do that now. Jesus, thank you for that sweet glimpse that you are providing for us here through uh, Matthew's writing, through this gospel that we have preserved all these many, 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 many years this glimpse that we have into uh, the way you interacted with those parents and those children that day, the correction that you gave to your disciples, and frankly, the correction that we need ourselves in more ways than we realize. Uh, to be called as your followers, uh, given how bent our minds and hearts are, we have to recognize continually that the bentness goes deep. It, It impacts, it affects, it cripples everything and every perspective that we have, including how we do family in our homes and in the church. And so we ask that you would help us to let go of our closely held assumptions this morning, and lay them down at your feet and allow ourselves to be corrected, instructed, uh, even as the disciples were that day. We need that. They needed it. We need it. Oh, would you help us hear what you were saying and see what you were doing and live, think, speak out of that. We pray in your name. Amen. For some number of weeks now, we've been camping out in this theme of how Jesus calls us as his people into kingdom community. That is a theme that begins right there in chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel and flows right on through that chapter and on into chapter 19. He calls us into kingdom community. You go back and you just go back, just think through what did we see in Matthew 18 and how does that unfold? Well, we see. The fact that we are called in the kingdom community, that radically impacts, it it just makes, it changes, it changes our response to sin, both within us and between us. It changes how we, uh, our approach to conflict, now you think in terms of the logical flow here, it changes our understanding of sin within and between. Therein, it also changes it impacts our understanding of how we do interpersonal conflict, how I, I approach you, how you approach me, how I forgive you, how you forgive me. Now think of how this unfolds. It also, therein, impacts being called into kingdom community, how we understand marriage, divorce, and singlehood. You see how this flows as Matthew 18 and 19 um, develop. It's not surprising then to see that this idea of our being called into kingdom community and how it impacts all of our relationships, beginning with how we do life together in the home and the church, in in marriage, divorce, singlehood, it's no surprise then that what you see here that the topic of children comes up and how we engage with our young ones, how we think of our young ones, how we love our young ones, not just in our homes, but in the larger church, the larger body as well. Again, we are called into kingdom community that demands that we approach all of our relationships in a whole new way. Marriage, divorce, singlehood, and children. In all things, we talked about this last week, in every way, our, the gospel impacts everything in every way Broadly and deeply, no exemptions. Nothing left out whatsoever. We are called to be different. We are called to be distinct, salt and light, a city on a hill, not living as the world around us, not living as we were once accustomed to living ourselves, many of us, called to live distinct and different lives, a kingdom community that impacts, that radically transforms, how we do relationships in every way, including with our children. That's what this text shows us. That's what this text shows us. Two things in particular, we're just gonna drill down in two things in particular. One, how we see our children, and flowing right out of that, how we love them. And, and, and this has implications not just for the family, the, the nuclear family, but the broader church as well. The church family, how we see our children, our children, his really, and how we love them. Let's look at these in turn. First, uh, That first point being how we see our children. I'm going to read the text again, verses 13 through 15, Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Well, obviously there is a contrast, a marked contrast between Jesus' view of these children and the disciples' view of the children. How did the disciples see them? They were men of their time. It's worth understanding, worth just knowing what the attitudes of children were in those times. Well, in some ways, the tension is is much like the tension in our own day. On the one hand, children were treasured. Absolutely. And yet at the same time, the tension, at the same time, these treasures were not valued, really, as members of society. There was very much a they-should-be-seen-and-not-heard sort of understanding when it came to the young ones in a community in in the family, and the synagogue. That's the attitudes of the time. That, of course, understandably, is feeding, is fueling the disciples' response, as we see here in this text, the annoyance, apparently, that they feel when it comes to their, this interruption, uh, this, uh, this delay in things unfolding, getting to where they need to go, and, and all, all of that. And so because of that, they rebuke Jesus' followers rebuke these parents who are bringing these children to Jesus. They rebuke them, meaning that they they strongly, sharply disagree with this very idea that Jesus would want to be troubled by these little pipsqueaks. And they want to prevent that. They want to stand opposed to that. They want to divert divert that. Well, that's their approach. What's Jesus' approach? That's their view. What's his view? Jesus all but rebukes the rebukers. He all but rebukes the rebukers. He sees them, for starters, I'll put it this way, as metaphors of humility, and therein he welcomes them. He treasures them. He wants them to be in his presence. At the very least, just as li- because they, children stand as living parables of humility. Go back and look at Matthew 18. We were there some weeks ago. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. And hear what's going on here. At, the, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is making very clear that that children just have a way, especially as they interact with their parents, they just have a way of being living embodiments of what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility? Humility? Dependency, vulnerability, trust? At the very least, they are living parables, living metaphors of humility, and therein deserve to be welcomed, deserve to be treasured, and, and ought to be. And so Jesus welcomes them and embraces them with all of that in mind. That said, that's not all that's going on here. It's quite clear from what, how, what Jesus says and what he does. He sees children not just as metaphors of humility, but as members of his kingdom. These children, not just as, member, as metaphors of, of humility, but as members of his kingdom. Understand, just think with me. What, to, if you're there as an eyewitness, you're in the crowd, you're watching this unfold. He's not just looking past these children. Oh, they're a, a living parable of other things. He's not just looking past these children. He's looking at them. He's not just talking about something you know, up here. He's talking about them. These children, he says, these parents, he says, are members of his kingdom and notice that he says regarding these young ones he says nothing nothing about anything they've done nothing about even what they believe simply as simply as children of believers he says they are members of my kingdom these children simply because they are Children of believers. That's how Jesus sees the children of believers as members of his kingdom. Now, that begs a question. How do we see our own children? What is the grid? What is the lens? Do we see them as he does? Not just as living metaphors of humility, but as members of his kingdom. How should we see them? Let's just break this down. We begin with this, Genesis 1 and 2, in tension with Genesis 3. They are fallen image bearers, our children. They are fallen image bearers. As Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, they are are glorious ruins, meaning that they are crippled and, 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 and bent every bit as much as we are by the fall of Adam, and in desperate need of the finished work of Jesus. That's foundational. That's foundation. What else can we say? Not just Genesis 1 and 2. What else can we say? Keep your thumb there in Matthew 18. Go with me, uh, 19, excuse me, to Genesis 17. Genesis 17. And what you'll see here is they are not just glorious ruins, but children of the promise. Genesis 17, this covenant... Made with Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. They are children of the covenant. Our children, the children of believers, are children of the covenant children of the Abrahamic promises, which means rock bottom. We are not to regard them merely as little pagans to be converted. We are to regard them as citizens of the kingdom, members of his church to be discipled. Rock bottom. Paul, I encourage you to go back and look this afternoon. Paul, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, addresses the children in those churches as disciples, as members of that body. In 1 Corinthians 7, he makes it clear that children of believers, simply because they are the children of believers, have a special standing before the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, go look it up. It's very, very clear. What does that mean? Parents. It means we are not to parent in fear, but in faith. We are not to parent in fear, but in faith. When it comes to our instruction of them, it is not to be so much how to become a child of God, but how to live as a child of God. To live as what You are. Our prayers for them is not so much with the emphasis that they would be saved, but that they would lay hold of what we have taught and modeled for them. Our confidence in no way has anything to do with us, but only with his goodness and grace and his promises to us in the covenant. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. This is not eliminating the possibility, and I will say well-nigh likelihood, of trials and times of testing that will pain your heart. This is not speaking of of the likelihood that one or more of your children may drift for some time, walk away, or possibly even reject the faith outright. This is not saying that won't happen. This is not saying that there is not the absolute foundational necessity of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But parents, believing parents, of with children, parents, they have children, <laughs> have great cause for hope have great grounds for hope because these children are children of the promise, children of the covenant, who do need to respond, but they are are children of a promise, children of the covenant. Again, as we said at the beginning, Jesus calls us into kingdom community. It's the way we look and approach all of our relationships, including our children, is radically different radically different than the way of the rest of the world. Move on to the next point. Because not just what we see here in terms of how we see our children has implications here, but also how we love them. How we love them. Let me read the text again. Uh, You see again, what does Jesus say and what does he do? Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. What does it mean to love our children the way Jesus loves our children? If we, in fact, are followers of Jesus, that demands we be imitators of Jesus. So how does Jesus love these children? What what do we see uh, commended here? What these parents are doing? It begins with bringing our children to Jesus. Just as we see with these parents here. Bringing our children to Jesus. Some of you may know the custom in those days was it was hardly unheard of for parents to bring their young ones to the elders, to the rabbis, that they would bless them. And clearly that's what they have in mind here with Jesus because he has a reputation that precedes him. And so they bring their young ones to him with the assumption that not only that he could bless them, but that he would. Now this is important. Not only that he could do it, but that he would, that he would delight to do it. What is the context of Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He has left Galilee in the north. He is now moving south. His face set like a flint to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way to his death, and he knows that. And he takes time with these children to love them, to bless them. That's tremendous, absolutely tremendous when you consider what he is doing here, what he considers to be critically, who, who he considers to be critically important to his mission and ministry, that he would take time in the midst of the Jerusalem journey to embrace these younglings. It's stirring. It's beautiful. We should learn from that. We love our children by bringing them to Jesus. We love our children by blessing them. Again, if we are called to be imitators of him, if he is to bless them, that's exactly what we are to do, to be blessings, to bless them. I mentioned the the custom of the day to bring children to the rabbi or to the elder. The custom also is that rabbi or that elder was to lay their hands upon that child. And the idea being that that was a way of conferring blessing, especially if you're talking about something from one generation to another. It's a physical, tangible way of expressing a spiritual, intangible thing. And that's what was going on there. Jesus is literally laying his hands upon these children. And the significance of the laying on of hands, so the significance of, of the blessing, and the fact that these parents are doing that. Just, just peel it back. Think with me. That they have an understanding of the reality of a blessing. That they're seeking that. That beyond just what we see, they recognize that the reality of faith and hope, of grace and mercy, of a loving God. and Jesus, the literal embodiment of that God as God himself in the flesh. The reality of a loving God to whom we must look and upon whom we must rely in everything, in parents, for the everything of your children. The blessing. The patterns that we see here just in this little text are so deeply instructive in terms of how we should see and love our children. Now, the last point, we pressed in on how should parents see their children in the the home. I want to move now, if I may, to talking about some points of application regarding the larger family, the church as a whole. We should never think of these young ones in this room or down that hall as a distraction to the real ministry of the church. They are essential, essential to the ministry of this church. They are members of this body, every bit as much so as anybody else in this room. Just because you take up more space in a seat doesn't mean you're bigger in terms of importance. Not a one of us. We should never view them in a sense of utility or what they have to offer or how much energy they just suck out of us but rather that they are vital members of this living body. And we would be so much less to lose any one of them in any way at all. Let me just be blunt, if I may. A church that believes Matthew 19, 13 through 15, should be a church that never has an issue filling the gaps in the nursery and children's ministries. This church should never have a leader of a children's ministry team chasing people around in the hallway with a clipboard hoping to get signups. Rather, the image should be people standing in line waiting for a turn to serve in those ways. Being very serious, if we believe what G- Jesus says and does here, That should be the way we see these treasures and love them so. A church that believes these things should be supportive of every family in our midst with young ones, and most in particular those who are fostering young ones in their homes and struggling in some cases to go through, and I just say, I don't mean this in a disparaging way regarding the state, but just saying jumping through the hoops of adoption. We should be coming alongside them and cheering them on and supporting them in any and every way we can. Learning the names of every kid in this church. Praying for them regularly. Looking creatively for ways to encourage them and their parents. Never frowning on one of them. Always smiling. Always smiling. We are called to be a kingdom community that demands that we approach all of our relationships in a completely new way, including with our children. No exemptions, no exceptions whatsoever. What we see here is something that sets us, blessedly so, on a completely different path that we might be otherwise prone to go down. So this this utterly rules out the idea of the idealization of children. Talk about what we looked at in the beginning. Or the resentment of children. It just utterly rules those out out of hand. But rather, neither one of those, but rather the treasuring of these children, which is diametrically different than either one of those. Uh, Psalm 127, I was reminded of this just this past week. Something else I read in connection with something else, but uh, where we read these words, verses 3 to 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are a ward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let me shift the, just ending uh, this, let me shift the metaphor, if I may, from, uh, treasures uh, to and gifts to gardening. Um, that young little plants would flourish. They need to be nurtured. There needs to be intentional care given towards them, uh, that they might have any hope whatsoever of flourishing. We know that if you, even if you've grown nothing but a cherry tomato. Uh, or a weed. Um, you know, something, you know, something of that. So the gardener has, he or she has to recognize they have a task in front of them. They, they have a task uh, upon which they need to be focused and they need to protect this young plant from whatever would do it harm, whatever would rob it of nutrients. Well, what is this task, gardeners? What, what is it that we would labor and long for? that our children would come to saving faith in Jesus and that they would grow in Christ's likeness and service in his kingdom. That's what we would long and labor for. What this passage shows us is that Christian parents have every reason to engage in that labor with confident expectation. With confident expectation, sowing, tending the soil, trusting in the Lord of the harvest to bring forth the growth whenever and however he sees fit. We're called as a kingdom community doing all of our relationships in a whole new way including with our children. Let's pray. Lord, to be in Christ, to be in union with you, we know we are told in the Scriptures, Paul tells us, means we are new creations. And by the Spirit, each of us a temple, but all of us collectively a temple. There is newness here. We are called to live with a new understanding, new goals, new priorities, all to be different. Salt, light, city on a hill, living signposts in a dark dying world. All of our relationships impacted, transformed. How we engage with one another, how we enter friendship, how we sustain those relationships, how we our families, what does that mean? How we love the children in our midst, the children in our homes, the children in this church, recognizing that they are not ours, not fundamentally, they are yours. We pray this morning here at this moment that those realities and everything else that we've talked about here this morning would be a source of true conviction and deep comfort and greater courage. Pray in your name.